Okay, great. Well, thank you for so much for being here and uh, being a part of this lecture today and really caring about your health. A few people, and I forgot to mention this um, in the introduction, it's not a repeat today and tomorrow, it's a continuation. So you have most of the slides on your handout, um, some we didn't have room for, right? But whatever we don't get to uh, today, we'll get to tomorrow. As opposed to my other lectures where I took questions in the beginning, I'm not gonna do that this time. Um, I'm gonna start, just start in and, because uh, we have so much to cover. If you have a burning question, you are welcome to raise your hand and I'll answer it in that moment. Otherwise, I will leave time for questions at the end of today. And then tomorrow, we'll finish what we didn't finish today and there'll be lots of time for all your questions, um, as best as I can answer them. Okay. So thank you for being here today. It's about understanding medical quandaries and moving forward in 2022. Um, give yourself credit for showing up today. Right. So where are we going? And I thought we could start with 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 9. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We've had a hard two years, right? And thank goodness we're all here in community again. And these are my words. We might be perplexed and discouraged, but we are never abandoned. The Lord is always with us, and he is stronger than any virus and any pandemic. So James Clear is a uh, famous author. He wrote a wonderful book called Atomic Habits, and this quote came in on his listserv two days ago. So I thought I'd share it with you. Many situations in life are similar to going on a hike. The few changes once you start walking. You don't need all the answers right now. New paths will reveal themselves if you have the courage to get started. So we're getting started. Over the last two years, Jeffrey, my husband, always teases me that I've been in perpetual school. And COVID had so many challenges, but one of the blessings of COVID for me was all the conferences went virtual. So I was able to go to conferences all over the world that I never dreamed of, learned about topics that I never even knew that I was interested in. And it was, um, like I said, such a blessing to be able to go to all those things and have new ways and new perspectives of looking at health. And so I'm very excited to share that with you today. So I ask permission that you keep an open mind Right? There, you might have some perspective shifts. Right? Medical problems many times are more complex than we realize. And a problem with an immediate solution is not always helpful for the long term. Hmm? And it's not as easy as one plus one equals two. Right? You have high blood pressure or high blood sugar, so take this pill. What is the reason you have that high blood sugar or high blood pressure? Right? Is it lifestyle? 
Is it an imbalance in your system or is it something else, right? And as I said before, the question to ask is not what do I take for that, but what's causing that? Because pharmaceuticals are not free, right? Think of all the money those pharmaceuticals companies are making. They come with a risk or a downside and they're prescribed like water. And if we wanna have true health, we have to look at things in a more integrative way. So what adjustments and supports do you need to make in your health, right? What do you need to adjust in your life to have the best optimal health? And what supports do you need to move forward? Because epigenetics is a term that's been used over the last umpteen years that you are not your genes. Your genes are only responsible for 10 to 20% of your health. It's your lifestyle, your diet, your environment that turns those genes on or off at least 80 to 90%. So how we live our lives and how we care for ourselves is so much more important than we realized. And this is a quote that's been in many of the lectures, conferences that I've been to recently. Genes load the, the gun, environment pulls the trigger. So how do you change your environment? How do you change your lifestyle to get the best health you can? And you frequently hear you are what you eat, but it's way more complex than that. We are what we eat, drink, think, breathe, touch, and can't eliminate. Right? So that's part of where we're going today. Where else are we going today? What's our roadmap for today and tomorrow? What type of diet lowers or increases immunity, inflammation, and overall health? What are the types of health? Mouth health, gut health, brain health, liver health. What, are, what environmental toxins and quandaries affect us much more than we realize? And what are some supports for immunity and health that we can learn from this pandemic and this virus to move forward? So I'll see a new patient and I say, well, I, I'm doing really well. I cut out red meat, right? You hear that frequently. That's been said over the last 15, 20 years. And I think that's been um, planted by many healthcare professionals, just avoid red meat and saturated fat and you'll be fine, right? Well, it's not that simple. Not eating red meat does not equal a healthy diet. It's so much more about refined carbs and sugars and inflammatory oils that they're now calling industrial seed oils. Canola oil, vegetable oil, corn oil, soybean oil, and you may say, well, I don't use any of those oils. I cook with olive oil. But what about those crackers that you're eating every day? Or those cookies that seem to sneak their way in after dinner, right? Or the chips that are in your cabinet. All those packaged processed foods have these industrial seed oils which drive inflammation. Right? And even if you're only eating those foods a few times a week, it's enough 
to change the way your system operates, right? That's the true Western diet. So how do we change that? And I call it a flexitarian whole foods diet, a diet of integrity, having grass-fed meat, grass-fed protein, wild fish, pastured eggs, and a diversity of vegetables and good fats. You say, well, I eat vegetables, but are you eating the same three vegetables every week, right? Maybe we need to change that because your gut really wants that diversity of different foods, especially different vegetables and fibers to feed your good gut bugs. I'll get to that when we talk about um, gut health. And you may be eating all that, all those wonderful foods, but do you have the ability to digest those foods? How's your gut health? Right? Are you taking care of that? So how do we protect ourselves with a healthy lifestyle? That's the most important mask. Right? Because many of us trying to protect ourselves from a pandemic, from a virus, but yet we're eating so many carbs and sugars and drinking. You know, a lot of my clients are drinking two or three glasses of wine every night. The average weight gain during COVID was 29 pounds, right? I have never been so busy in my whole life in my practice. People came back, they just thought, the pandemic was, we all thought it was gonna last a few weeks and it went on and on and on and they just kept eating and drinking, right? And unfortunately, that Western food diet, you may have gained a little weight before, your cholesterol was a little high or maybe your blood sugar was a little high or you felt um, a little fatigued in the afternoon. But what COVID taught us is when we do not take care of ourselves in a proper way with our health, with our diet, that caused COVID to be rampant in our bodies because we had all that extra sugar, all that extra glucose, all that extra inflammation, which lowered immunity besides just increasing inflammation. So the virus took advantage of that vulnerability and it paints a picture of how vulnerable we are as a population. But that's completely changeable. That's the hope for today. So the best protection is a healthy lifestyle. Avoidance of packaged processed foods, which really have no nutrients and also have no value for our gut microbiome. So the less processed foods you eat, the healthier your gut's gonna be. And then, you may have heard me talk about this two years ago. If you want a whole lecture on that, go back and hear the lectures. But time-restricted eating or fasting is very important for helping regenerate immune cells and turning energy into healing. I'll touch a little bit on that today, but we have so much other to cover. So how do you make an adjustment in your health? How do you control inflammation? so that you have more function in your body. Because the more inflammation you have, the less energy, the less vitality, the more pain, and your overall health suffers. So this is a picture of cupcakes. And there's a, there's a couple 
there's this really wonderful couple that comes to all comers. They're not here this time. As we know, there's a lot of people that aren't here. And every year they would go into Santa Cruz, some famous cupcake place. Someone here probably knows what it is. And they would get these cupcakes. So Jeffrey and I called them the cupcakes. So the cupcakes aren't here, but they would go and they would savor these cupcakes. And you know, if you do that every once in a while, it's not a bad thing. But are you eating cupcakes, cakes, cookies, sugars on a regular basis, right? Because it's those refined sugars, the oils that are in them, that drive inflammation, right? Besides fast foods, processed foods, alcohol, gluten, right? And they're known to trigger your immune system and result in overproduction of what's called pro-inflammatory cytokines. And you may have heard that term um, thrown around that the cytokine storm was rampant in COVID. And those are proteins that are secreted by our immune system that modulate your immune response. And what you do, what you eat, your lifestyles turn those hormones on or off. And it's all about insulin. If you came to my lectures before, you heard me say that. Insulin is the hormone that digests your food, but it's also a hormone that can be manipulated and controlled and managed depending on what you eat and how often you eat. So if you eat a lot of carbs and sugars and processed carbohydrates, your pancreas is doing overtime, right? It's working really hard. And even and if you eat a lot of carbs and sugars at a certain meal, you're going to get a plethora of insulin in your system at that time, which can increase aches and pains, inflammation, disease. Right? And so how do you calm things down in your body right? in terms of time-restricted eating, eating less carbs, and less snacking? That's one of the things. If you're constantly snacking, your pancreas, again, is working, 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 never gets a chance to rest and regenerate. So what about time-restricted eating? You know, everyone talks about intermittent fasting, but it's really about time-restricted eating. And there was a major study that was done right before COVID hit that talked about what is the window of time to eat in to really help lower risk of diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer. And it was done over you know, quite a few years and they come up with this 10 hour window. So if you eat in a 10 hour window, meaning you eat breakfast at eight, you'd be done by six o'clock, right? And then have what we call a 14 hour fast overnight. And what happens is, is you give your body that chance to rest and reset. You give your organs a chance to regenerate and um, clear all they need to do overnight for the next day, right? And what happens also is our gut microbiome will flourish when we fast, right? The bacteria, everything that's there gets a chance to be processed. And our major organs of the pancreas, the liver, the gut, the brain, very important, all get a chance to do that. And if you really are um, 
intentional about keeping that 10-hour fast and keeping your carbs and sugars low, you're going to have that wonderful result of increasing immunity and metabolic health. Is the speed okay? Am I going too fast? No? Okay. If it's too fast, just do this. Don't do that, because <laughs> right. just do that, right? Okay. Okay. Yes, that's perfect. So the types of health, mouth health, gut health, brain health, liver health, let's get into those. So you, you may have heard this word, it's thrown around a lot, your gut microbiome. But the microbiome is the trillions of microorganisms in your mouth and your gut. And if out of balance, these bugs can wreak havoc on your system, right? So it's really important to have all those gut bugs really happy in your body, right? And we almost think of the microbiome as its own organ, its own ecosystem, right? And has so many different um, values for us, again, if it's in balance. So let's jump into the oral microbiome. So if out of balance, some of these things, many of the things you already know, can lead to cavities, periodontal disease. But did you know that if there's problems in your mouth, it can actually lead to heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and an autoimmune condition? And we used to just focus on what we call leaky gut, but now they're saying the most important thing to focus on is leaky mouth. Right? So you can get that from poor dental hygiene, right? high sugar diet, and chronic stress, right? Those are things that affect that. So oral health is so, so important, right? And almost four billion people have some type of untreated tooth decay impacting almost 50% of the world population, right? So it's a big deal. So go to your dentist, right? Be a preventer. Get your teeth cleaned three times a year not just twice a year, right? Floss every night, right? Get one of those electric toothbrushes or d dental picks or whatever you have to do. It's so much more important than we realized. And every time you eat or drink, it can either lead towards gum disease or away from gum disease, right? Because sugar feeds all those bad bugs in the mouth. So which way do you want to go? And 80 to 90% of all health issues start in the mouth with certain oral micro microbes. So the mouth is actually the gateway to the rest of the body's health. Right? And germs, bad bugs in your mouth, can be the driver of inflammation, especially in the heart. And an important thing that has come out of the research is, do you have mercury or amalgam fillings in your mouth? Because if you do, that's something really important that needs to be addressed. A lot of people, um, especially older people, have mercury fillings in their mouth. And what they're saying now, I'll talk about this when I get to brain health, the mercury in your mouth, it's very close to your brain. Right? So it's, it can be a huge driver of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. 
So regular flossing, dental visits um, to avoid leaky mouth, and regular blood work. So three important markers. Vitamin D, I'll talk about that when I get to supplements. Very important. If you have a low vitamin D, that's inversely related to immunity and insulin resistance. So you want to make sure to get that up. C-reactive protein, very important blood marker. Many physicians measure it, many don't. It's a measure of all overbody inflammation. However, I have found that if it's high, many times you have an infection in your, in your mouth and you're not even aware of it. You know, I'll see a, I'll see a high C-reactive protein. I said, well, have you gone to the dentist? Yeah, I went. Everything was fine. I have no pain. Would you please go back again and, and check? Right? And I have this one patient. C-reactive protein is supposed to be about less than three, and hers was 14. So it's really high. And I said, please, please go back. And so reluctantly, her dentist sent her to a, a specialist, and she had a a raging infection in her mouth. Right? We had that treated, her C-reactive protein came right down. Right? So make sure you have that checked on your blood work yearly. Another one, very simple blood test, is plaque 2, which is very related to heart disease. Right? But that's something um, that your regular doctor can easily measure. It's not expensive. He may say, well, insurance isn't going to cover it. It might be $30. Right? It's not a big deal. So periodontal disease is a chronic infection which can lead to inflammation in the arteries. So if you have an infection in your mouth, it can lead to that infection in your arteries. And then the plaque too is the enzyme associated with LDL cholesterol. It may be the only indicator of periodontal disease and often is overlooked as a cause of heart attack or stroke. And I talked about C-reactive protein. You didn't hear it? Yes. So plaque 2, it's an enzyme associated with LDL cholesterol, and it's very tied to infection or inflammation in the mouth, which is tied to inflammation in the arteries. And we call it the... The next slide... We call it the oral systemic link, right? So many times that can be the only sign that something's actually wrong in your heart. So that's why that's a good thing to have checked um, on a yearly basis. So what are some other tips? And this is where you might have to have a little bit of a perspective shift on what you've been taught. So use natural toothpaste that doesn't contain fluoride. Right? We've been taught that fluoride is a good thing. It strengthens the teeth, but it's actually an element on the periodic table, one of the strongest ones. And if you really do a deep dive into how fluoride affects your body, right, it's neurotoxic and disrupts proper gut function. And I put two different documentaries and websites on there if you want to look into this. Because I was skeptical too. You know, we've been taught for years, you know, have fluoride. But really, it's one of those things that should have never been put in the water supply. And if you really look at the research 
countries that have the lowest amount of fluoride in their water supply um, have much healthier babies, much less risk of SIDS, crib death, right? And so, um, and we have one of the highest um, incidences of that in America, and we have high levels of uh, fluoride in our water supply and in mouthwashes and toothpaste. Um, if you want a recommendation on some good toothpaste, I have, I have ideas, you can ask me later. Right? And then have your mercury or amalgam fillings removed by someone who's very competent because sometimes your regular dentist may not know how to do that safely. And so you wanna have that done as safely as possible so you're not exposing your body to mercury in the process of getting rid of them. So what are some other oral tips? Chew less gum. A lot of us chew a lot of gum. And it reduces your stomach acids over time. And if you're chewing all day long, you're wearing out that system. And eat more vegetables. We'll talk about that more when we get to gut health. But studies out of Germany showed that the more diversity of vegetables, it reduces um, bleeding in your gums. And avoid alcohol-containing mouthwashes because that dries out your gums. So here's another interesting one called oil pulling. And this is an easy, easy thing that you can do to help your, to help your mouth. So in the morning, have some coconut oil nearby. And when you get up, put a tablespoon of coconut oil in your mouth, swirl it around, you know, and uh, swish it around, kind of like you do mouthwash, for about 10 to 15 minutes. And because coconut oil is antimicrobial and antibacterial, it actually starts to draw a lot of those bad gut bacteria out of your mouth into the, um, into the coconut oil. And then, after you've done that for 10 or 15 minutes, then spit it out in the garbage. Do not spit it out in your sink because it'll clog your pipes. Right? So that's an easy thing you can do because the oil is pulling and binding the bacteria, viruses, fungi. Right? And it can go places that you can't go with your toothbrush. Right? So it's, it's really working at a deep level on your gums um, in a really easy, impactful way. Well, of course, there's lots of different oils, but there's no other oil that does that, right? Because coconut oil, but thanks, Carrie, for that question. Coconut oil is the only one that has that strong antibacterial. And I find I'm really, I'm really not a coconut person, but I find the more I swish it around, I don't even... Yeah. You don't swallow it. You don't swallow it. You don't, you don't taste it, right? Okay. Can you melt it first? No. Well, as, as, you, as you swish it around in your mouth, it automatically melts. And it's liquid in the summertime. So when it's hot outside, it's liquid. But in the wintertime, it's like hard. Minutes. Patience. 
If you can do at least three minutes, that's gonna be helpful. Sometimes I have the leash on my dog, Perry, in the morning, and he looks at me, I'm like, I gotta get my coconut oil in my mouth before we go out the door. He looks at me and, you know, I just do it, and I'd actually do it on the first 10, 15 minutes of our walk, and then I, you know, spit it out on the ground. Don't tell anyone. Okay. So moving on from the mouth to the gut. If you have problems in your mouth, you make over two liters of saliva a day. So if you have a lot of bugs in your mouth, guess what? You're swallowing those every day, which can lead to poor gut health or leaky gut. I'm going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. And what happens is, is if you have leaky gut, you're going to have problems absorbing all your nutrients, right? Because not remember, you are what you eat, drink, absorb, can't eliminate. It's very, very important. So your lifestyle is very important in your gut health, right? Your diet, your stress, environmental toxins. So why is the gut so important? If you think about the different organs in your body, the largest, does anyone know what the largest organ in your body is? Skin. Skin. Ooh, you're smart. Second organ? The gut. If you were to measure your gut, it's the size of a tennis court. So there's a lot that can go wrong. And this is, yeah, it's hard to imagine. It's all, God, God designed it in such a beautiful way. And 80 to 90, this is a very important point, 80 to 90% of your serotonin is made in your gut. And 80% of your immune system is in your gut. So if your gut isn't happy, you're not happy. And so many times someone will feel depressed or anxious unwell, they'll go to their physician and say, I'm depressed, they'll get an antidepressant, but guess what? They're not psychologically depressed, they're physically depressed. So the problem is not to try to fix the mind, the problem is to try to fix the gut. Because if you fix the problems in the gut, serotonin levels goes up, people feel better. And the other reason, again, I alluded to this many times so far, is if your gut isn't happy, you're not going to absorb all the nutrients, vitamins, and minerals that you need, right? So if you have gut issues, is it IBS? You've heard that a lot over the years. Is it leaky gut? Or is it something else? And IBS, I heard this so many times when I was a young dietitian, it's just a catch-all term for we don't really know what's wrong with you, right? And it's very pejorative, right? You have irritable bowel syndrome. What does that mean, right? And what's interesting is there's a physician at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, Mark Pimentel, is very famous, and he's done all this research, and he doesn't actually believe in IBS. He says that 25% of 
the world's population as something called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Right? If you have bloating after meals, you know, or pain, or constipation, or diarrhea, right? you possibly may have something called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and there's different types of SIBO. Um, there's a hydrogen type of SIBO, and there's a methane type of SIBO, and they're both treated very differently. And guess where SIBO usually comes from? Food poisoning, right? I cannot tell you how many times someone will come to me with gut issues, and they'll say, you know, I've just had all these stomach issues for years. I'll say, well, when did they start? And then they'll kind of think about it. You know, after I went on this trip and got food poisoning, and then a light goes off. So that is something to consider, is if you had food poisoning, and then you have gut issues since then, you probably have a long-term case of SIBO. And unfortunately, there's, you go to a GI doctor, not, there's wonderful, all kinds of doctors, but the protocols are usually, let's put you on these expensive antibiotics, right? Which do make you feel better for about a week or two or three. And then what happens is it comes back and then you have the same symptoms and you have to deal with it. So part, this is where patience and being methodical about treating the bacteria in your gut is really important. And I probably went to, uh, no joke, 20 SIBO conferences over COVID trying to learn how to really help people and deal with it because it's so um, stubborn and complex. And part of it is being on what's called some antimicrobials with, over a period of months, which help eradicate and get rid of the bacteria, and doing that in a really thoughtful way. And if you've had SIBO for a long time, you most likely have leaky gut. Or you just might have leaky gut, right? Which is intestinal permeability. So the the lining of the gut has these gatekeepers that allow good nutrients to be absorbed at certain points in your gut and other things to be, to be blocked. Um, toxins, bacteria, uh, parasites, yeast, right? But if these tight junctures get compromised, then those things are allowed to get through, right? And then they get into the body and the bloodstream, right? And since the body sees these things as invaders, it makes antibodies to them, which causes a plethora of autoimmune diseases, food allergies, right? And many times you don't even know that's why you have an autoimmune disease, because you can, and we can link it back to leaky gut. So what causes leaky gut, right? That's one of the major questions. Medications, pharmaceuticals. Aleve, Advil, major causes of leaky gut. Antibiotics, if you've been on more than one antibiotic and in six months, that causes major gut issues. It's very hard to recover from that. PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, heartburn medications, which are prescribed like water, right? And the problem with that is you may think of acid as a bad thing, 
but our guts were designed to have acid to actually block that bad bacteria and digest our food. So if you are constantly lowering the acid in your gut on a daily basis, you're at risk for many other things. And the things that are linked to that now are osteoporosis and kidney disease. I can't tell you many times I've, I see patients, how long have you been on this drug? Oh, 20 years, 15 years, right? They were really originally designed for people with ulcers to heal the ulcers over you know, maybe six to eight weeks. They were really never designed to have people be on them for many, many years. So that's something to address with your physician. After hearing this, do not go home and go off of them <laughs> because they are very addictive to your body and you will get a really bad response. So it has to be done in a very, if you decide you're gonna do that, with your physician in a thoughtful way about how to do it, right? So that you don't punish your body. Hmm? Alcohol. Huge one in increasing intestinal permeability, right? You're, <clears throat> it's toxic to the bacteria in your, in your body, in your gut, but also your liver, you know, has to detoxify all that alcohol, which was a problem um, in the pandemic. Chronic sugar, refined oils, which I've talked about already. So... You may have heard this word dysbiosis, which just basically means the gut is out of whack with good and bad bacteria. It's out of balance. And sometimes you don't have SIBO, you don't have leaky gut, you just have dysbiosis, right? That's actually an easier fix, right? So, and the two things that you can easily do is increase the diversity of vegetables in your diet with fiber. Don't just eat green beans, uh, I hear this, peas, which are truly not a vegetable. I knew that when I was three years old. <laughs> my parents would negotiate with me to eat my peas, and at three years old, I knew these are not a vegetable. These are a legume. So anyway, uh, corn, not truly a vegetable, right? That's a starch. And maybe part of that is challenging yourself. I had to do that. I wasn't a great vegetable eater, right? I, Jeffrey had this term growing up when he was young that you had a no thank you serving of something you didn't like, right? To acclimate your taste buds to get yourself over the hump of eating it. I had to do that for myself with many vegetables. So like going to different stores, buying things you wouldn't normally buy, um, going to a different store that you normally wouldn't go to and eating, you know, the clippings of the tops of strawberries or carrots or dandelion greens or kale or, you know, these things that we don't normally eat. When you eat a diversity and a variety of all these things, it feeds those good gut, gut microbes in a wonderful way, which can allow your, um, <clears throat> your mouth, excuse me, your gut to really function in a much more optimal way. And then the fasting. Because if you're eating in a very short window, if you're eating close to bed, right, you're only getting a six or eight hour window of, of uh, fasting, your gut's not, not gonna get the rest and reset that it needs. 
And this is a very, very important point. <clears throat> when you constantly eat or snack, it impacts what's called the cleaning waves of the gut. Okay, what does that mean? So when you eat, your body makes glucose out of the food that you eat, your blood sugar goes up, your, your pancreas produces insulin, which goes up, takes about two hours, and then the final two hours, the cleaning waves take over and start to get rid of everything in the gut to rest and reset for your next meal. But guess what? If you eat again in two or three hours, the cleaning waves go, oh, I guess we're not needed anymore, right? They stop working, because now digestion has to occur. The pancreas produces more insulin. And then you get this overgrowth of bacteria and food in your gut. It's a little gross, which can ferment, right? And cause a lot of issues. So having that full four hours between meals is really important so the cleaning waves can complete what they need to. And if you're hungry in between, it means you're probably not eating enough at that meal to get you through those four hours. So you might need to eat a little more protein, a little more good fat, a little more fiber, vegetables, and figuring out what is needed to get you through those four hours is, is important. And every person's different, and the balance of what your body likes is different, right? Because without the cleaning waves, it's like the weeds grow in your, um, in your gut, right? And once they get a hold, it's hard to get rid of that bad bacteria. So the importance of the cleaning waves, if you eat too frequently, they're compromised, right? So you get that buildup of bacteria, which can result in abdominal pain, cramps, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, all these things we, we want to avoid. Mm -hmm. So how do we truly heal the gut? Address any underlying issues, right? See if you have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, if you suspect that you have that, there's a special diet that you have to follow two days before you have a test, right? Your doctor usually has a copy of that, of what that would look like. And then the third day, you wake up and you drink this lactulose drink. It doesn't taste bad. And you, um, every 20 minutes, you have to blow into a test tube. And it's a, they have home tests, home kits now, you can do that. And it will measure the types of gases that you produce during those three hours, which measures the type of bacterial overgrowth you have and how exactly how to treat it. Right. And that's something you want more information on, let me know. Um, again, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but eat only every four hours, right? For years, I've heard this term, or heard this said, you know, you have to eat every two hours to stimulate your metabolism, right? That was a made-up term. That was never a true thing, right? And remember, every time you eat, your pancreas secretes insulin. So if you're eating every two hours, you have 
high insulin levels in your bloodstream, which not only increases inflammation, but also the inability to burn and utilize fat, right? And so that creates that sluggish metabolism that we want to avoid. So that's why we need that four hours for all our organs to reset the pancreas and the liver to clear out, which makes your metabolism work better. So clean eating is very important in terms of the balance of what you're eating and eating enough vegetables. You notice I didn't say fruits, okay? Eating enough vegetables and a diversity of vegetables um, so that you really, truly take care of your gut. A plethora of vegetables, you know? Whether it's spinach, asparagus, kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, carrots, you know? Just the gamut. Just try not to eat the same three things, which people tend to do. Yeah. yeah. No. However, if you eat cooked vegetables with olive oil, it tends to increase the, um, the absorption of the phytochemicals and the nutrients in the vegetables. So like so many times people would eat like raw carrots or raw veggies with nothing else, which is actually, you're getting great fiber but it's a little bit of a waste because you're not eating it with fat, which helps absorb all the nutrients in the vegetables. So how do you cook vegetables? With olive oil, you know, avocado oil, coconut oil. Make sure if you are buying olive oil that it's a good type because for years um, there was some studies done and um, reviews that found that many of the Olive oils in the grocery stores are adulterated, meaning they were mixed with soybean oil or vegetable oil, so not truly olive oil. You can um, get information on consumer reports, but there is also a website, Consumer Research, if you want information, ASPE, and they do all the reviews on looking at um, the integrity of all those things. And it's only like $35 a year. So it's, it's, it's a pretty good service. You said something about, notice I didn't say fruits. Does that mean all fruits are off the table? So fruits are interesting. Um, I think I'll put this in now. So thank you, Cindy. That's a good one. Um, we've been conditioned to think of fruits as, as healthy. And, and that's very true. But fruits... The fruit of today is different than the fruit of many years ago, right? And now fruit is picked prematurely and um, ripened in warehouses where it's gassed and we come up with these huge apples and oranges and the, the things you see in the grocery store. And they have a much higher fructose content. And here's the thing that someone asked me before we started is all the organs of the body digest glucose, but the only organ that digests fructose is the liver. So if you're eating large portions of fruit, then the liver has to metabolize and clear that, 
which can eventually lead to fatty liver and what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I'll get to that um, shortly. And, the, and fruit was really designed to be much smaller than it is and in, have it in small amounts. So the, the lowest fructose fruits are uh, berries, right? Those are the best, you know, having some berries. But, you know, small apples, small oranges, nectarines. I mean, having those in small amounts, but not large amounts, not a large bowl of fruit and cereal before you go to bed. Right? That's kind of the worst thing. The liver is like, oh, right? It's not very happy. Um, about five or six years ago, Jeffrey and I went to Ireland for one of my conferences, and we stayed at this uh, place where they actually, this wonderful farm, Ballymallow, where they you know, grew all their own uh, vegetables, and they had fruit trees. And I remember one morning I went out and picked an apple, and literally it was like this big. And I ate it, and it was probably the best apple that I had in my life, but it was much less sweet, right? And uh, it truly showed me what fruit is supposed to taste like um, versus, you know, these huge pieces of fruit that are so, so sweet. And I usually measure things in terms of total carbohydrates. So a big apple could be 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrate, which is like four slices worth of bread. Right? That's a lot of sugar in your system, you know, versus a small apple or tangerine, which is 15 carbs, which is much more, um, your body's much uh, more able to metabolize that. Susan, what are thoughts on seasonal versus non-seasonal? It's always better to buy in season, right? because you're going to get things that are, are fresher, hopefully more organic. Um, and it's always better if you can to get organic produce because it has a lot less pesticides. And you may see in um, studies, oh, organic produce doesn't have any more nutrients than inorganic. And that may be true, but it's not about the nutrients. It's about the pesticides and the pesticide load in your body. Right? And pesticides are a huge driver of inflammation and autoimmune disease, right? So that's something um, really important to look at if you have a predisposition towards that. So what else can you do? Right? How do you help your digestion to be in sync? Right? Well, you need that acid environment in your stomach to digest your food. And as we age, sometimes that acid environment is decreased. So adding some lemon, lemon to your water or apple cider vinegar to water before you have a meal, that can really help. Some people need digestive enzymes. There's hundreds of digestive enzymes on the market. Try one. If it doesn't work, you can try another one. They're, they're all quite different. Right? And possible causes of being out of sync is that protein pump inhibitor use, right? Because if you're not getting the good stomach acids, right, that lowers nutrients absorption of B12 and zinc. And we know zinc is so important for immunity, 
And if you say, well, you know, I, I have all this heartburn and I need that, well, what is the driver of the heartburn, right? Or is the, the balance of your diet out of sync, right? Because if, and if you're eating a lot of carbs and sugars, right, they're gonna go two ways, right? It's gonna go up or gonna go down. And so how do you address that versus always putting a Band-Aid on it to try to fix it? And how do you improve what's called the vagus nerve? You probably never heard of the vagus nerve, so I'm gonna get into that now. The vagus nerves improves your acid production and stimulates the gallbladder and the pancreas to release enzymes to digest your food. So what is the vagus nerve? It's the highway between your gut and your brain and it has the largest nerve distribution in the body, and it's critical to your overall health. And hardly anybody knows about it, and it's being ignored, right? But if it's not working optimally, it can affect digestion, blood pressure, immunity, blood glucose, and even your mood, right? It's that connection between the gut and the microbiome of the brain. Yes, the brain also has a microbiome. And it's the primary component of keeping our parasympathetic system normal, right? You have your sympathetic, your stress system, and parasympathetic, right? Which calms down our system, keeps our heart rate in sync, helps our brain function, lowers blood pressure, um, helps inflammation. And if you have low vagal tone, right, there's a problem in that connection, it can lead to chronic fatigue, Alzheimer's, depression, Parkinson's, all kinds of things, leaky gut, migraines. So how do we help our vagus nerve? There's some different ways. Because it communicates viscerally what's going on in our heart to our brain. So if we don't feel safe, right, we're constantly stressing the sympathetic system, it's gonna affect our vagus nerve and make us more vulnerable. So I have some ideas for us how to to help that. So one, how do you keep your vagus nerve in shape? Turn the water to cold at the end of the shower. This was a hard one for me, I had to Pardon the pun, warm up to this. (laughs) And I was thinking about all of you this morning because Mount Hermon water is cold. And so when I was taking that lovely warm shower and I started to put it cold, I'm like, oh, this is really hard. But I did it, so I could say I did it today. (laughs) Um, And what's interesting is when you do that, you kind of wake up your system and it it actually, even though it's hard initially, it feels good. The second thing is to stimulate your gag reflex. Remember when you went to the doctor and they, they said, you know, stick out your tongue? So I brought popsicle sticks for each of you. <laughs> so if you want one, come get one. And just put it at the back of your throat like you're gagging. And then if you press up and down, it's like you're doing a push-up. <laughs> 
for your vagus nerve, right? So that's an easy thing that you can do every day. I'll put this one here, so. Yeah, and I, I felt it like go up and down, that push up. Yeah. Um, gargle with water. Hmm? I was pushing with this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I had to think about it. So thanks. <laughs> uh, this is one that bugs Jeffrey, but I gargle with water one to two minutes a day. I'm not always great about this one, right? Cause, but it, it really helps with stimulating the vagus nerve. And then here's one for the, Gra the Grassi brothers, and they would like this, is, you know, Sing loudly and hum because the, the uh, vocal cords are very close to the vagus nerve, right? So when you do that, it gives your vagus nerve a workout. And then nose breathing. So everybody put two fingers on top of your forehead here and then put your two fingers on your nose and then you breathe in for a count of four and then hold for a count of four and then breathe out the other side for a count of four. And if you do that three or four cycles, it actually makes you feel good and um, helps your sinuses, but also really helps your vagus nerve. Yeah, you block one side and then the other. Breathe in. No, out your other end. Out your other no nostril. Yeah. And then Psalm 43.5, hope in God, because hope really does help the vagus nerve as well. You know, and we all need hope, right? Hope that things will get better. Hope that the virus will leave us and um, that life will return to some sort of normalcy. Right? And today is how do we return to that normalcy in a new, refreshed, healthy way. Mm, we're not there yet. You're ahead of the curve. It's okay. Um, I'm not sure what time we're supposed to end. Twelve thirty. Okay. Okay. So how about we stop here, and tomorrow we'll cover the rest of the lecture, right? as well as take all your questions. So bring your questions. I will answer them to the best of my ability. If I don't know something, I will tell you, but I am willing to research it for you. So what questions do you have so far right now? I can't hear you. Hmm? But there was someone in the back that... Three, time, three times a day. So if you ate at eight, you know, eight, one, 
five, six, yeah. 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 There was someone over here. I don't have it on the agenda, but talk to me afterward. Okay. Yeah, so like is monk fruit any better for you than sugar, or is it all the same? It's a really good question. You know, there's so many, so many sweet, oh, is monk fruit any better than other sweeteners? And when you really look at the research, all sweeteners still make the pancreas work and they're between 400 and 8,000 times sweeter than sugar. So they keep your brain wanting sweet, which makes it hard to break that cycle. So I usually try to tell people, if you really need a little sugar, have a little raw honey or a little bit of maple syrup, because it's the real taste threshold of sweet versus that elevated sweet taste. And I also had a patient in my practice who ate a ton of monk fruit and he got terrible SIBO. Because fake sweeteners tend to really agitate the gut. Uh, what brand of toothpaste would you recommend that doesn't contain fluoride? Uncle Harry's. <laughs> Uncle Harry's. They have it at Staff of Life here and Wild Roots. It's very good. Well, part of moving forward, and that's going to be in tomorrow's lecture, is how do you pick the one thing that makes the most sense to you, right? And that answer isn't inside of me. The answer's inside of you. Yeah? That's very individual. I mean, I'm not a fan of it, but some people... It depends on your physiology. So that's, again, very individual. I am. I think that one's good, too. Yeah. A different toothpaste, Jason's. So tomorrow, we're going to cover the lymph system, which is very important. We're going to cover brain health and liver health and supplements, right? So we've got a lot to cover, and I'll try to get through that as well as answer your questions. And right now, Jeffrey has an announcement for us about books. Hello, everyone. This is my portion of the dog and pony show. So first of all, I, it's so nice to see all of you. It's been a while. It's nice to see you again. It was nice to see you at Thanksgiving. Um, so, over the course of the last few years, Mount Hermon and all of you have been very gracious to us. And you've purchased our books and stuff and all of the books funds over the course of the last, what, three years? Two years. Two maybe years. Three years. You guys have raised $1,800 that's gone back into Mount Hermon. So, I thank all of you for that. And so, again, we're... Susan's got the books over there if you want to.
there's some books over there. And um, just thank you. It's really good to see yeah. all of you. There's a recipe for life, which is a latex book for health. A lot of, lot of, a little bit about a lot of things. Right? There's a, a diabetes book. There's a cookie book. All the proceeds go to Mount Hermon. And we thought today, if you buy a recipe for life, we'll give you the cookie book and the, and the diabetes book. So, so there's limited offer. There, we didn't bring that many this time because we knew it was going to be a small conference. Can I tell them the price? No. She did. Didn't you tell them the price? No, I think it's $30 for... $30 for, you get the whole thing. Okay. So and thank, so you, thank you for t today, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow.